Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. George Smart is the founder and executive director of U.S. Modernist, which is an award-winning non-profit educational archive for the documentation, preservation, and promotion of residential modernist architecture. He's a well-known archivist of and advocate for modern architecture, both in the past and the present, and host of the modern architecture podcast, U.S. Modernist Radio, named by Dwell as the number two architecture and design podcast. U.S. Modernist is America's largest open digital archive of modernist houses across America, featuring nearly every Wright, Lloyd Wright, Neutra, Schindler, Lautner, Elwood, Koenig, Ain, Soriano, Built and Unbuilt, and more. The organization has won the 2016 AIA Institute Honors for Collaborative and Professional Achievement, the AIA highest award for non-architects. So, George Smart, I would love to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Um, so, I've done some uh, linguistic research. Okay. And, and I, I see if I can help, get some help from you. So, I was thinking what I should call this episode. And then I looked it up in, in, in Oxford, in the dictionary here, and uh, they do a distinction between modern modernity and modernism. Um, where do you stand in this? Well, I don't have an official position. I mean, it's all very murky, really, and <laughs> yeah. very subjective. Yeah. But as far as our website is concerned, we consider modernism to be more of a style or a movement than a period of time. I see. So you can have mid-century modernism. You can have late-century modernism. Uh, it's still going on now. Um, it's been a, a style and, and a way of living that has really lasted quite a long time. And it's still enormously popular. So you don't make any sort of clear definition that in 1898, then we went from this and then we entered, and then we left it. You say that it's sort of a, a philosophy. I, I read somewhere that someone said it's, it's a phil, uh, philosophical movement as well as an art movement. Well, that's very true. I mean, I have to leave it up to the architecture schools and the art schools to debate that endlessly okay. um, amongst themselves. Yeah. But for our purposes, we basically have four criteria okay. for uh, the houses that we feature. Uh, it has a low pitch or flat roof. Okay. It tends to have an unusual geometry. So it's not just a square box or a rectangle. Mm -hmm. It tends to have an open floor plan. Yeah. Which these days is normal for almost all houses, but back when modernism started was a very radical new feature yeah. in architecture. And then finally, an abundance of light sources, many windows, um, openings, courtyards, skylights, atria, all of that. So you have this connection with the outside that isn't in a typical house, which tends to have many fewer windows and smaller windows. Yes, And, you know, I, I find that so interesting because in today's world, when someone is doing a renovation of a house uh, or, or an apartment, they all open up the, the, the walls. They all open up to the light. Open yeah. kitchen is everywhere. So it's a philosophy that uh, has lived on and I guess is, is dominating in, these, in, these, in this day and age, right? Well, we can all thank air conditioning for this <laughs> because... Before air conditioning and central heat, oh. um, residences typically, unless you were very rich, yeah. had small rooms that could be closed off. Yeah. So you could heat certain sections of the house during the winter and close up other sections for economy. But once we had central heat and particularly air conditioning, that was no longer a factor. I see. Uh, so if we turn it around then, what is not modernism? Uh, is that uh, everything that is not what you said, the four criteria? <laughs> Well, I guess that would be, you know, sort of an easy way to, to gauge it all. I mean, in, in residential, um, you know, most Americans still prefer the kind of house that reminds them of the past. So something that looks a little Victorian or like a mill house, like a Cape Cod house, like a colonial house. Um, I tell people all the time that modernism, 
like NASCAR and sushi. It just isn't for everybody. <laughs> no. But for those that love it, they really love it. Yeah, that's right. What is the criticism of modernism? Because there is apparently some kind of debate here, right, uh, among architects yes. and others. Well, modernism, um, for those that, that don't like it, uh, it appears to be cold. Mm -hmm. It appears to be not taking uh, human needs into account, uh, particularly with buildings that are made out of heavy concrete called brutalist buildings. Often these buildings were not uh, designed to fulfill the function inside. They don't really work well for what they're being used for. Uh, in our town, we have a, a really beautiful um, mid-century modern building. I think it's about uh, six, seven stories tall, uh, designed by Milton Small, who was a protege of Mies van der Rohe in mm -hmm. Chicago. And for years, this was a wonderful insurance office building, and it, people loved it. But then the insurance company left town, and the city took it over as a police station okay. for 25 years. And the police hated it. And the city fathers and mothers all hated it, too. So they wanted to destroy it because it was such a bad police station. Yeah. But in fact, it just needed to be returned to either office use or turned into some sort of residences, which it works for that, too. Yeah. And I'm glad to say that that building has been saved here and is going to be repurposed. Yeah. And that's really what um, a number of buildings now face across the country, the decision between being destroyed or being repurposed. Yeah. That's very interesting uh, how, how that can work. I mean, I, I spoke to uh, this uh, architect, I can't remember his name now, uh, Richard Southwick, who did the... Uh, TWA, yes. TWA, uh, exactly, hotel. And and, uh, and I didn't know that, that uh, his speciality is to repurpose old building, to yes. renovate them, to keep, to... Um, alter the function and add new components so that the, the the renovated building has some added dimension to it dimensions to it and I thought that was very interesting how he explained this philosophy to me oh uh, yes uh, his firm has done uh, on any number of projects where they have gone in and helped uh, restore a building and give it new capability yeah that's very interesting. So I'm a little curious. Uh, this article that you 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 wrote in the Zine, um, mm -hmm. how did that come about? Uh, the Zine approached me uh -huh. and asked me to write up ten buildings I liked. Yeah, it was pretty much as simple as that. Yeah, was it hard? Uh, not particularly. I mean, <laughs> we've had so many to choose from. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, doesn't that make it hard, though? No, not not really. Uh -huh. um, and of course, you know, I, I'm not the arbiter of taste by any means, so it's just uh -huh. my particular subjective opinion. Yeah. And so that was pretty easy to run through. So what is your taste? Is it possible to articulate that? And, and has it changed over the years? Well, I, I'm pretty consistent. I mean, in terms of what kind of structure we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, modernism for residences really works well, I think, up until about um, 5,000, 6,000 square feet, which oh. is a, quite a large house. Yeah. But now they're building houses in LA particularly that are 15,000, 20,000, 25,000 square feet. Uh, to me, that's a little much. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, you're really building a hotel yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Because you're building such giant common areas, you might as well have uh, your own Airbnb. So it doesn't quite work for me in that respect. But they're, they're still, I mean, these houses are amazing structures. Yeah. Um, for hospitals, um, there's a hospital in Indianapolis called Eshkenazi. I believe I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm. uh, that I got to tour a few years ago. Yeah. And by the time I left that hospital, I really wanted to check in. I mean, <laughs> astonishing. Yeah. Uh, on the roof, there is a rooftop garden Yeah, they use to grow the food for the hospital. And patients can take the elevator and go up there and walk around. Yeah, And, and the whole design of the place was oriented towards healing and towards um, better health, which was really a, an original genesis of the modernist movement. Um, the Lovell Health House which was designed after the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, introduced this idea of 
having open windows in California and lots of light and lots of spaces and being able to um, enjoy better health because you weren't cooped into a tiny space with a fireplace going that was putting out toxins into your room. Mm-hmm. So you, you wanted to check in? Yes, absolutely. I was ready for a procedure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You felt you had a little pain somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I like that. I love a quote here that I found in, in, in one of the interviews with you when you said that a house that lives back at you, it's not a container. What, what do you mean by that? Let's just take sort of your, your typical house or apartment that, that you live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with your average apartment, but it's kind of a place where you put your stuff. The container for you. And, and architecture and, and modern architecture really comes alive when your space exceeds that. Yeah. When it, when it brings you some kind of joy for being there. Yeah. Where uh, you think more of reasons not to leave the house than actually to leave the house. Yeah. And that's what is, is, is so inspiring about, um, you know, not just the famous architects around the country, yeah. but yeah. the unheralded architects yeah. in smaller towns yeah. that maybe did two or three modern houses during their career. And part of what we do as an organization is to try to document those houses as well. So they don't get destroyed because that's what often happens to a house that is not well documented. Yeah. I believe in one of the interviews you defined modernism in terms of the architects. And you mentioned Gruppius, Breuer, Mies van der Rohe, Johnson, Lautner, Neutra. And you also said something uh, that I found interesting in another article that Bjarke Ingels is this century's Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, so we have a lot, yes. to, lot to talk about here. So, yes. so did I get it right in terms of, of, of the architects that you think defines this? Well, I mean, they are typically the architects that are mentioned when yeah. you start talking about modernism yeah. as the ones who had a lot of influence on um, the rest of the architecture profession. And uh, I am an unashamed fan of Bjarke Ingels um, because... Uh, if you go back and look at his his work, he really broke through around 2004, 2005 with some remarkable buildings in Copenhagen and especially uh, in the Orestad region just south of Copenhagen proper near the airport where he was was looking at creating buildings that not only looked fabulous and, and were beautiful and lived well, but um, allow the people inside them to have a greater experience of being home. Again, they were more than just containers. And and now he is doing projects all over the world um, at an astonishing scale. His firm has somewhere on the order of 400, 500 people, which is a very large, large organization. And I get press releases about every two weeks that a new building is being finished at the firm design. Yeah. It's astonishing. Yeah. He has a new book out called Form Giving, mm-hmm. which is a, an excellent thing for people to read about how Bjarke Ingels thinks through project design. Hmm. And there's a new documentary uh, on a building you may have heard of in Copenhagen where they uh, decided to build a incinerator, which is kind of the worst of projects. Yeah. But he turned it into a combination incinerator ski slope. Yeah. So now Copenhagen citizens can go ski on top of the incinerator. And it's also a very environmentally friendly incinerator. So you're not going to die up there from all the toxins. It's really (laughs) quite good, the air quality. Yeah. Denmark, they don't have any, you know, I'm from Sweden. We At least yeah. we have some mountains, right? But Denmark is pretty flat. So, I mean, very flat. Th- that was great. And they rarely have snow, but I guess they, they manufacture snow somehow. Or I don't know what the surface is that they ski on. Is it snow or is it uh, plastic? Anyway. On the incinerator building, it's actually an artificial turf. So you can ski year round on it. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, no, he, he is uh, he's an incredible uh Architect, I totally agree with you. And we're going to talk about uh, his uh, project here in New York uh, a little bit later. So you believe that he is the Frank Lloyd Wright of our century? Yes, of his generation. Of his generation, yeah. I mean, he is just in his uh, mid-40s, I believe, right now. Yeah. 
So he's got a long way to go with his career. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright lived uh, into his, I think he lived until 1959. So that would be like in his 90s, I believe, late 80s, and was turning out some of his best work uh, in the last 10 years of his life, including the um, Guggenheim in New York, which was uh, completed after his death. But uh, the reason I made the expression about Bjarke Ingels being so influential is that he is really starting to, to reshape the way that Clients are thinking about buildings, mm -hmm. um, the way buildings appear. You don't have to go any further than the west side of New York. Yeah. See his Via 57 building, which stands out remarkably visually. But also, if you talk to the people who live there, they just love it. It's just a fantastic place and environment to be in. Yeah. And it's incredible how he has managed that everybody has a view and everybody has a, the light and it's it's beautifully uh, orchestrated the whole the whole building is just uh, it's like a pyramid in the midst of all these square buildings it's um it's just it's just fascinating you know how he thought out of the box and how people had the courage to go along with that idea now nobody said you know what Bjarke, right. really? Can you? I mean, it looks like an, you know, a, a pushed-over pyramid, like a pyramid that is sort of leaning. Um, but uh, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, how he did that? It is, and and if you look through his website, which is really quite extensive, you can see these buildings from around the world. But in addition to buildings, he's working on really giant projects. Yeah. Um, I know he's working on a plan to uh, reclaim some of the land around New York for flood control. That's right. Um, that's going on. Um, he has been sketching out plans for going to Mars. What yeah. kind of buildings are we going to have when we get to that planet? And everything in between. Yeah. Um, you know, now, of course, uh, like all architects, I'm sure he's going to design some really awful buildings in his career. But for now, he's doing great. Yeah. One more thing. Yeah. He has the coolest boat. Do you know about the boat? No. No, tell me about oh, the boat. This was featured in Architectural Digest uh, late last year. Uh-huh. He and his wife, Ruth, took a ferry boat, I believe a Danish ferry boat, Yeah. and, and remodeled it into a floating home. Yeah. Which is, I think, remarkable because Normally, you think of someone who's getting a big boat, they're going to get this kind of sleek yacht, very pretentious kind of thing. But you look at this renovated ferry boat, and it actually looks like a, a very comfortable home to yeah, be in. Yeah, yeah. And it's docked in Copenhagen, where he has a view of the incinerator ski slope <laughs> from the deck of his boat. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So every day he can ponder upon his achievements. Yes. <laughs> I love that. You have a great podcast. Um, well, thank you. Yes, I, I saw that. Dwell has uh, given you a very good, uh, uh, what did they say? It was the second best. Uh, I have it here somewhere in my notes. Yes, we made, it, we made a top 10 list one time in Dwell, yeah. Top 10 list in Dwell. Congratulations, uh, George. I, sh I should pay more attention to it and I should listen to it. How many episodes do you have? I think we have recorded around 185. Uh, we've had about 270 guests. We often have two guests per show. And then in the last um, year, year and a half, we've started featuring uh, musical guests, jazz performers primarily. Yeah, I saw that. That's a very interesting combination. The reason is, is because typically whenever I'm visiting a modernist house somewhere, there's jazz playing in the background. And I noticed that <laughs> and thought we should add this component yeah. to the show. And um, I invited on someone who's, whose work I really admired, and she was great. And she referred me to some other people. And now we've had about 25 or 30 different performers come on. Yeah. And uh, that will continue throughout uh, the rest of this year and next year. It was remarkable how many of these performers 
their father was an architect or another family member, or they had lived in a modernist house growing up, or they owned one now, or um, they had very fond memories of visiting one at one time. There was certainly an affection yeah. for architecture within that community. Yeah, and wasn't it Frank Lloyd Wright who said that architecture is frozen music? You know, I, I've heard that quote before. I think that's right, but I'm not exactly sure. I, it could be Goethe. I don't, I, 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 it kind of goes different ways. Your father was an architect. He was. So my dad was a, a journeyman architect, uh -huh. like so many thousands of them across America. He went to design school in the 50s at NC State, um, loved Frank Lloyd Wright like everybody did, um, loved modernism. But as most architects discovered, especially in the South, Uh, the clients didn't want to build modernism. Uh, they wanted to build very conventional churches and schools and um, a few houses, yeah. industrial facilities, things like that, which is the norm and to be understood. Yeah. So um, I grew up in that family. Uh, I had no real appreciation of architecture at all. I did not want to be an architect. Mm -hmm. I spent many summers working in his office, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was horrible because uh, you know, it just had no attachment to it. And then one dark and stormy night in 2007, um, after decades in a completely different career, yeah. I was Googling for a modernist house in my area because I was thinking about building one yeah. and found all these really cool houses that I wasn't aware of in Raleigh, the town I grew up. And sadly, some of these had been torn down. About three hours later, There's this scene in Alien, you may remember, the original Alien, where that little monster pops out of the guy's stomach and goes running around the room. Yeah. Well, I had the same kind of experience when I remembered that I had been to these houses as a child. I was like six years old and had seen all these things. And it had kind of stuck in my brain for now 40 years. I decided I would make a list of the houses and try to visit them and see, you know, where they were and so forth. And long story short, this list turned into a website. The website was local. It went statewide. It went national. And now our whole nonprofit enterprise is the largest open digital site for residential modern architecture in the world. That's incredible. And that is called U.S. Modernist. U.S. Modernist, yes. U.S. Modernist. In a sense, this was all inside of you because you spent your career as a management consultant or a strategic yes. planner. Yes. Uh, and then this was brewing inside of you then, uh, uh, subconsciously. Right. This was waiting to explode. <laughs> My wife refers to this entire project as a 14-year seizure. <laughs> I love that. I love that about you, uh, George. When I saw this this photo of you with with the dry martini, you look like you just look like uh, you know cut out of a James Bond movie, right? <laughs> you know, and your 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 website. I I our listeners have to go to your website because there's a lo lots of humor everywhere, and and you have all, all your colleagues are presented in a very very fun way. Um, I like what you say about Trevor O'Donnell. By night, social media. By day, a walking Wikipedia on Palm Springs. Oh, yes. He's great. <laughs> and, and you want to keep the website very... Um, Fred Flintstone is your webmaster. Right. So, uh, so uh, those people out there who are professional web designers yeah. um, are not going to be thrilled with our site because it's not the most advanced. In fact, the tools we're using to build it Uh, were obsolete in 2012. Yeah. But the good news is, is that um, we can easily maintain it with no IT staff. Yeah. It's exceptionally large. It's a little bit over a terabyte of content. And uh, and one day we'll spruce it up a little bit more. We, we clean it up every few years, one more iteration. On the plus side, it's very fast and very easy. Mm -hmm. And um, people use it all over the world for research for finding out about houses they're curious about yeah. or for researching the lives of architects. And it's and it's free and open to everybody. There is no uh, There's no charge for anything anywhere. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible, George. That's a wonderful contribution to architecture history. And you have gotten some awards for that as well. 
Yes, we are very proud to have been recognized by a few different groups uh, for building this archive and for helping get the word out about the houses. Yeah, 2016 AIA Institute Honors for Collaborative and Professional Achievement, the AIA's highest award for non-architects. Yes, that's that's the I tell them that's the the big award for mere mortals. <laughs> that's like the Nobel Prize. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, if, there, if there was a Nobel Prize for non-scientists, that would be the same thing. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Have you been to Stockholm? I've been in Stockholm for six hours. It was a port stop on a cruise that I was on. I have spent a lot more time in uh, Copenhagen, spent a little time in Malmo. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I love that whole region of the world. Yeah. Any favorite projects in Malmo? There is one, actually. The, the most famous project that uh, hits the modern architecture radar yeah. is called the, the Turning Torso or the Twisting Tower by Santiago Calatrava, oh, yeah, that's uh, right. one of the most famous architects in the world. Yeah. Uh, he started his career really working in, um, in bridges and other superstructures and then has expanded over the last 30 years to do amazing commissions all around the globe. Yeah. Um, he was hired by a housing organization, public housing, to design um, a tower in Malmo. Mm-hmm. And he did. It's it's a fascinating structure. You can Google it. Mm-hmm. It's visible from all over Sweden and, of course, from the other side, all along the coast of Denmark. You can see it on a clear day. Yeah, from Bjarke Ingels ski slope, you can see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you certainly you certainly can on a clear day. Yeah. So um, Santiago Calatrava is, is really a genius of design. Um, he's not the best cost estimator oh. uh, because his projects tend to go wildly out of budget by the time that they're done. Yeah, we and have one down the street here. Yes, yes, <laughs> the, the Oculus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, this tower, uh, the, the guy who was in charge of the housing development uh, kind of put his career on the line in hiring Calatrava to do this. And it mm. kept getting more expensive and more expensive and more expensive. And um, I believe he almost went to jail for it um, because this became such a scandal in Malmo. <laughs> okay. Um, and the building's been up there, I believe now about 10 years, maybe 12 years now. So it's been there quite a while. We tracked down the, the guy who had hired Calatrava <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in uh, Malta. Oops. <laughs> what was he doing down there? And I don't know if he was hiding out or what, but uh, we had a really fun conversation with us. What it's like to be Calatrava's client. Yeah. Well, I think this place down the street had the Oculus. Wasn't that $4 billion or or was it scheduled it was, for it two was, and it was a lot of money. or something like that? Yeah. It was a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, on the podcast, we sometimes uh, make a little joke saying that, uh, you know, there should be a Santiago Calatrava Institute of on-time and on-budget performance. <laughs> yeah, that's there should be an award for that. Yeah. Yes. But I, I, I remember when I spoke to Paul Goldberger about uh, Frank Gehry, he took pride in actually being on-time and, yes. and on-budget. And he, and he said yes. that he's been actually accused of doing, you know, very elaborate and very expensive buildings. But Paul uh, quoted him by saying that, you know... I, I basically design a box, you know, for everything. Like you said before, that contains everything that needs to be contained. And then I yes. just, you know, put something around it that looks nice. And really, if you compare it, you know, square feet, uh, it, it's not that uh, uh, extravagant. And uh, through modern technology, you can achieve a lot uh, productivity-wise and stuff, stuff like that. So uh, the U.S. Modernist, the organization that you started... Documentation, preservation, and promotion. So let's take them one at a time. Documentation. Sure. You you said here, I, I found out that you have 8,000 houses in four major sections. So how do you organize this for our listeners? I mean, what is the structure of the, the, the database? When we started this, I looked at what was out there on the internet mm-hmm. and found that uh, with a few exceptions, almost everything was organized by geography. So you could go to Cincinnati, Ohio, and you could see maybe a dozen modernist houses. They would imply there were a hundred more modernist houses somewhere in Cincinnati. These were just the most famous ones. So 
we decided just because of practicality and the fact that we couldn't take on a whole nation at once, we would do one architect at a time and find everything that architect had ever done, no matter where it was, built and unbuilt. And our first architect was John Lautner, who was a very prolific architect uh, known for his uh, amazing designs and his use of concrete, really innovative engineering in California. It took about a month, maybe a month and a half to put that initial archive together. And then we launched it and noticed that within a week or two, our traffic had doubled. Well, we can do more of these. And so we did all of Frank Lloyd Wright. And then we did all of Rudolf Schindler and we did Craig Elwood. And now we have uh, a, probably a hundred different profiles on the website. So in the New York area, we have all of Charles Guathmi's. We have all of Richard Meyer's houses. We're working right now on Julian and Barbara Nesky, who were famous out on Long Island. Mm -hmm. Harry Bates out on Long Island. Andrew Geller out on Long Island. The Harvard Five in New Canaan. Gropius Breuer, Johansson, and Moore. And there are about 8,000 houses in there total. So you can see photos of them, uh, when they were built, who the original client was, uh, what's happened to them? Are they still around? Have they been modified? And are there other ways to approach the database? What we do have is a very nice generic search function. So you can, you can it, you, it works just like a Google search box. I see. You can go in and type an address, for instance, mm -hmm. or a city, or a city and an architect. Mm -hmm. And then it will give you, you know, guidance on where to find that information. Old magazines play an important role here. You said something in the beginning. You, you, you scan, what, 500,000 pages in four days. You bought five scanners. <laughs> yes. How, how did that? Was that the start of this? That was, the start of this was a random phone call from a realtor in Charlotte uh -huh. who said, I'm standing in the basement of a house that was owned by an architect. And he used to work for a much older architect. And I have all their magazines here, boxes and boxes of them. Do you want them? And I just said, for some reason, I said, yes. And then he said, well, you're going to have to get them out of there by Wednesday okay. because we're going to throw them away. And this was Monday. Wow. So I got on the phone. Charlotte is about two and a half hours from here. Yeah. I got on the phone. I got a guy in his truck to drive down there the next day and pick them all up and bring them back to my garage. Um, I'm guessing there were about 25 cases of magazines, um, maybe 30. Wow. And wow. then we went on eBay and bought some old, old sheet feed scanners. Yeah. Hooked them up to some old, old laptops because <laughs> you don't need a lot of horsepower for this. Yeah. And then uh, took the magazines down to my local FedEx office, and they sheared off the spines. Uh-huh. And now we could sheet feed the magazines into the scanners. Wow. And this made it go relatively quickly, because if we had to do it page by page, like they do in libraries, it would have taken many, many lifetimes yeah. to get yeah. that all done. Wow. So once this initial batch of half a million or so went through... We started getting other uh, people who would donate. Now we're up to about 3.1, 3.2 million pages. Yeah. And we hope to add another uh, seven or 800,000 this summer. Do you still find uh, old magazines? Because you said somewhere that, uh, uh, so the heydays for these architectural magazines was like from the 30s, 40s to the 70s. And then the 70s. they most of them died away. Do you still find this, these kinds of uh, treasure troves? Yes, we still do. Um, we find them in people's storage units mm -hmm. or their attics or their basements. Um, uh, libraries now yeah. want to get rid of these magazines because while they're great publications, no one has looked at them for decades. Yeah. So we take them and not only scan them, but make them OCR searchable. So now you can search for keywords within the magazine, which is a capability that didn't exist before. Wow, that's incredible. So do you, have you thought about like an alliance to other academic institutions that would give you some, um, how should I say, maybe there's some synergies there? Has, has that ever crossed your mind? Yes, I mean, that's, we, we have that now. Any number of libraries donate their magazines to us. 
Oh, that's um, great. AIA organizations, the national and state, have given us their magazines. Uh, the Smithsonian, uh, various museums have sent us issues they no longer want. Mm-hmm. So we are able to turn most of those around within just a week or two and get that up on the website. That's incredible. I mean, I, I just tell people I'm an accidental archivist. <laughs> I never thought this was going to happen yeah. or that yeah. I would end up in this role. But what is really fun about these magazines is that while, you know, capturing, you know, original coverage of these architects and the houses at the time that they were most famous and popular. Yeah. We're also capturing all the ads yeah. for the doorknobs and the windows and the appliances and the rooftops and everything. Yeah. So that people who are looking to renovate their houses yeah. can look up these materials and see if the companies are still in business. So you, your logo is this chair. Tell me about the chair. So the logo is, is commonly known as a butterfly chair. It is a, a steel frame that folds open and has a canvas piece of material that you slide onto the steel frame. These were um, popularized, I want to say, in the 1940s, late 30s. And the reason it became our logo is because in almost every photo of every mid-century modernist house, there was one of these chairs. Yeah. It was kind of the universal symbol yeah. for modernism. So that's why we adopted it. Who designed it? Do you know? The butterfly chair was originally called BKF, or the Hardoy chair, after a trio of people who had studied it with Le Corbusier. Uh, Antonio Bonet, Juan Kirchon, and Jorge Ferrari Hardoy. Hmm. And they created this chair in Argentina in 1938. 1938. That's very cool. And it's cool. still going strong. Yeah. Is it comfortable to sit in? For a while. <laughs> I, I sort of remember it's hard to get out of the chair. I mean, because if it, you, it slides you, you back. Can, Once you won't move forward, the, the chair yeah. has a tendency of sliding back. You can get a little too comfortable in it, and then you have to kind of propel yourself out. Documentation is one of your, your key uh, missions here for the U.S. modernist. And then preservation. What can we say about preservation? Preservation really boils down to how do we keep the important houses from being destroyed? Because mm-hmm. that was really epidemic between about 1975 and 1995. As modernism fell out of favor, people didn't like it anymore. Um, these houses were just treated as junk. Yeah. And um, a lot of them were torn down. Many times it's because a realtor or a seller who might have been the um, fifth or sixth or tenth owner of a house that was built in 1950. They wouldn't have the plans anymore. They wouldn't know any of the history of the house. The house naturally would have deteriorated over the course of 50, 60 years. So naturally, one of the alternatives they think about is, well, let's just sell it as a teardown and then be done with it. And that's really sad because some of these houses are, are just astonishing and, and need a little love. So we noticed that early on, the 11th hour rescue efforts that you see publicized from time to time to yeah. save a building um, rarely work. Um, the time to intervene is when the house goes vacant. The moment mm-hmm. someone is not living there mm-hmm. is when local people and fans and preservationists can spring into action. Mm-hmm. Um, doing things as simple as just keeping somebody in the house. Even if they're just house sitting, you never want to have a house be empty because vacancy is the real enemy of modernism. If a house is vacant, it's going to deteriorate faster. It's going to invite bad things like vandals and animals eventually and water damage and things like that. So you want somebody there all the time looking after it. We do uh, a service just within my home state of North Carolina, Mm -hmm. where we keep track of every modernist house in the entire state that goes on the market. What about other states? Do you have... uh... Other states, we don't have that kind of capability right now. It would be Uh too much for us to handle. Uh But I talk to people occasionally about how to set that up for themselves Uh and uh, and monitor that on their own. One of the nice things about... The internet these days, and, and particular websites, yeah. is so many of them have alert features. 
So if there's a, a house or a property or a neighborhood you want to be in that has modernist houses, you can set up an alert when something goes on the market. I see. Um, that doesn't coincide necessarily when the house goes vacant, but that's where it's up to local preservation groups to keep tabs on the houses. I see. So is there a New York chapter of U.S. modernists, so to speak, people who are doing similar things to what you're doing here in New York? Well, we don't have chapters as an organization mm -hmm. uh, for U.S. modernists, uh, but there are any number of uh, organizations in New York and around the country that do a wonderful job with modernism. The principal one being uh, an, an organization called DOCOMOMO. DOCOMOMO stands for the Documentation and Conservation of the Modern Movement. Uh, they have a very active New York chapter, mm -hmm. and also the national organization is headquartered in New York. So is there anything equivalent to landmark in what we are discussing here? Yes. Uh, let's start with the example of the movies. Okay. So imagine for a moment that in America, there was no movie rating system, that we allowed every community to decide what was okay to show in a movie and what was not, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's how it is for landmarking and preservation. Every community, every state, um, every municipality has slightly different rules mm -hmm. on, on designations. Um, the bottom line is though, that with some exceptions, uh, landmarking, national registry designation or other historical designations don't typically have any legal enforcement power, which means they're just like getting an award for something, recognition. You can have houses, for instance, that have won lots of distinguished recognition for being historical, and there's nothing preventing that from being torn down. Um, the only thing that really works 100% is a great tool called the preservation easement, mm -hmm. which anybody generally can get on a single structure that they own. So what a preservation easement is, is it's a homeowners association for one building. And you set it up and it applies to that structure and you sort of regulate what can be done to that over the future. Mm. And then that gets filed with the deed and runs forever. Hmm. So if future owners wanna do something to the house, they have to get permission from the trustee of that easement to do it. And this might sound bad, but you can write these preservation easements to be very comfortable, very easygoing, just preventing things like um, ridiculous looking additions onto a house or destroying part of an original house or things like that. The more forward thinking groups around the country have really pushed to get preservation easements on the most historic structures. So there is some kind of a, a safety net there uh, yes. in place that can be activated if, if right. need be. Now, I don't know all the nuances, but I do know that in, in New York, there are some legal protections. Documentation, uh, preservation, and then promoting, right? Tell me about the, right. the tours. How, 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 how is that structured? We want to have more people actually experience modernism from the inside, to yeah. go in the buildings, to go in the houses, particularly people who don't think they like modernism very much, mm -hmm. often have never been in a modernist structure. It just looks cold and uninviting from the outside, but they don't necessarily know what the vibe is to be inside it on the inside, mm -hmm. especially if you get a chance to stay overnight. But what's been wonderful over the last 10 years is that more very significant buildings, even a dozen Frank Lloyd Wright houses, you can book as Airbnbs wow. and stay overnight in these and, and kind of get the vibe, see if you really like it or not. And, and what's so special yeah. about these houses and, and walking around, you know, my favorite moment when I can stay in a modernist house is to try to wake up roughly around the time of sunrise. Yeah. And the light is coming in the house because even the architect has thought about this. And I'm sipping my cup of coffee, watching the light play off of all of this and going, wow, this is what it's all about. Very cool. That's very cool. It's so interesting uh, with you, George, because you have you have very you're a very open personality and modern design is very open. So there is a, a complete uh, overlap there, you know. The, the thing you're passionate about is actually part of your extended uh, DNA uh, to some extent. I, I guess so. It's been just a blast. I have, <laughs> I have had so much more fun yeah. than, uh, than when I was a management consultant. I, I had great clients, yeah. but um, this is, is so much better. Someone thanks me almost every day 
for this, which I can tell you did not happen in management consulting. <laughs> now there, there we share something. In, in, there we have something in common. I used to be a management consultant too. For, so, so this is this is wonderful. So this um, uh, podcast is uh, the theme of this podcast is New York. So let's think about New York for a while here. You told me before when we spoke that you come to New York uh, often, and. Yes. Um, uh, do you get in touch with Untapped or Open House New York, or do you do your own um, tours in New York? How does that work? We do tours of New York modernism um, every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Where we're bringing people primarily from my area, North Carolina, up for a couple of days uh, to tour different buildings. So we take people to the TWA Hotel mm-hmm. uh, out by Kennedy, where we'll stay overnight. And what uh, is the real secret of that facility is there is an underground conference complex, 50,000 square feet. that is just magnificent, right underneath the tarmac between the Saren and um, Terminal building and the hotel. And so we take people on a thorough tour of that entire complex. We'll have drinks in the airplane they have sitting out behind the building. And then we'll take them to places like the Four Freedoms Park on Roosevelt Island, mm-hmm. which was designed by uh, Louis Kahn. And uh, he died in 74. And the project wasn't finished until about 38 years later in 2012. And it is a really magnificent example of how to build a memorial, uh, both in terms of the structure and also the landscape design for that memorial, uh, which was uh, done by uh, one of his um, uh, paramours, uh, the woman that he had a son with, Harriet Pattison. Mm-hmm. Um, she did the landscape, original landscape design for that and was involved in the final execution of that. Mm. Uh, we had her on the podcast most recently because she's got a new book out of the love letters that she and Louis Kahn sent back and forth to each other. Wow. What are the clusters of uh, modernism? Is it, uh, I mean, you mentioned you are in uh, North Carolina. Yes. Uh, You mentioned Palm Springs in California. Modernism Week is the Super Bowl (laughs) of modernist architecture. Okay. I love that. Okay. There's nothing bigger or badder or better (laughs) than going to Modernism Week. Yeah. And it's been happening for roughly about 15 years. Um, this year, of course, it's, it's scaled back somewhat because of the pandemic, but it'll be back in full force in 2022. Okay. And what, what, what time of the year are we talking about? We're talking uh, mid-February, mm-hmm. where the weather in Palm Springs is, is gorgeous and it's terrible everywhere else in the country. So okay. what, are, what other buildings in Manhattan are, are you attracted to? I'm a big fan of the United Nations complex. Mm-hmm. Very modern building. And as, as most of my listeners know, I'm an unapologetic Star Trek fan. <laughs> okay. And the whole idea in Star Trek of Starfleet was modeled after the United Nations project. Huh. So it would be a federation of planets as opposed to a federation of nations. I see. So when you see the movies where they show the Starfleet headquarters and the giant assembly room where the delegates from all these worlds are assembling. Yeah. Guess what it looks just like? <laughs> the main assembly hall at the United Nations. Yeah. And you go through that building, and even though it was built a long time ago, it still is very future-oriented. It's still very hopeful. Yeah. And, you know, this is not to say that the UN doesn't have its issues and its problems and things like that, but I still hold out for a, a future where our planet gets its act together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the UN is going to be a big part of that. Yeah. You said that modernism is, you said, optimistic and mm-hmm. hopeful. It's, it's really believing that the past was, was fine, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't try to return there. Mm-hmm. We should try to evolve and develop mm-hmm. and make things even better for people's lives. And that was so strong after World War II. Yeah. Because the U.S. had been victorious in this war on two fronts. And now it was time to settle down and focus inward and in making people's lives great. We also mentioned in New York the O'Toole Medical Service building. And I passed that building. I've passed that building many times. And I've always wondered, 
where does this building come from? Uh, I know it's uh, some kind of a hospital of some sort. It was designed by an architect named Ledner. Mm -hmm. And his client was the Maritime Union, which he did a number of buildings around the country. Um, his daughter, Catherine Ledner, did a documentary about his life and work a couple of years ago. I got to interview her. And I believe just a couple of months after the documentary premiered, her dad passed away, which is very sad, but he did get to see it. It's a very strange building. It, it, it looks like there are three parts of it and there are jagged edge and he's just put them one on top of the other and then there's the jaggedness sort of around it. Do you know what he thought about, what he was inspired by? I, I do not know what his motivation was for that. <laughs> Yeah, he should explain it himself. Yes. It's probably in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a very good uh, recommendation. Both the documentary about the O'Toole uh, Medical Services Building and also, of course, what you talked about before, Louis Kahn, my architect uh, done by his son, came out in 2003. I believe you can stream it through Netflix or Hulu or, or Amazon Prime, one of those services. It's available. Yeah. So, George, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, this was very uh, entertaining. You are a fun, uh, <laughs> you're a fun guy, and you do a tremendous important work in, in preserving and documenting and promoting uh, modernism. And, Anders, I'm going to invite you onto our podcast oh. as our musical guest because I want to have people hear about your progression from stodgy corporate executive to <laughs> world-renowned singer to being deemed by NBC the sting of Stockholm <laughs> to occasional TV actor to now doing an art and architecture podcast. So we'll talk about all that one day. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm deeply moved and honored. <laughs> Thank you, George. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on www.artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.